You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. <laughs> Very assertive today. I hope, I hope you're having a wonderful day. Ryan, how's your day? I'm doing all right. I doing like to right. hear that. Yes, yes, yes. We're doing, yes, we're we're doing, doing, we're all, doing all right. We're doing okay. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for uh, spending an hour with me every week. If you're here for Jason Alexander only, I appreciate that. But hopefully you'll stick around if you like my voice or you like my interviewing style. I hope you do. Uh, it was a real treat interviewing Jason Alexander. Before we get that, let me just say a few things. Uh, my band will be playing November 20th virtually. You can watch it. And uh, there's prizes and Zooms. Go to sunspin.com. A band is called Sunspin. You go to sunspin.com. And you can also go to Stage It. Type in Sunspin and get your tickets. Please support the band, Sunspin. Uh, sunspin.com also has merch. Um, and the Inside of You online store has tons of really great stuff. Um, Lex Luthor stuff, Smallville stuff, Inside of You stuff, Tumblrs, just a bunch of great stuff you can get there uh, to support the podcast. And lovable patrons, I love you. Thank you for supporting the podcast. If you want to join Patreon, they give to the podcast a little more. They keep the podcast afloat. They help me pay for extra stuff so I can give you a good quality show. Uh, just go to patreon.com slash inside of you, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash inside of you. Join the family. There's uh, there's uh, lots of tiers and things you can get, perks, and it's become a big family. So I don't need to talk too much about that. I could probably talk about it for an hour. Um, lastly, I will just say that uh, my um, charity that I work with, I'm on the board for, Echoes of Hope. Um, for the next month or two, if you want to donate or help out Echoes of Hope, uh, we're hosting a holiday event for under-resourced children, teens, and young adults. Roughly 300 students will be supported this December. And if they want to purchase a gift, if you guys want to purchase a gift or two, you can visit uh, our wish list on Amazon by going to at Our Echoes of Hope on social media. Uh, these are students who a lot of times do not have family, so they oftentimes spend the holidays alone, and it can be a very difficult time for them. Um, so we host a holiday party to make the uh, holiday season special for them. Visit our website too, echoesofhope.org. And there's a bunch of different options for giving on the donate page. So I will say that. And lastly, um, this is a really cool product. They sent me a bunch of stuff and they're not a sponsor. They don't get paid for this, but they sent me a bunch of, it's called mead. Have you heard of mead? Mead, like the, the, the thing that knights drink? Yes, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. Originally founded in 2017 by Travis Sigler and Taylor Toll, who are making mead in a closet and doing leather work on a kitchen table. Weird, <laughs> weird, it's called, has made quite an impact on Portland. Hmm. Uh, in the past year, Weird settled into its current location with the partnership of Doug Winsgate at, uh, in 2019, and Weird Leatherworks and Meadery has brought a new medieval fantasy-themed business specializing in the production of handmade leather goods, such as armor, belts, and accessories for film, as well as producing their own mead. Yes, Weird not only sells and serves its own brand of mead, but makes it right on site. It's similar to wine. Mead is brewed using honey as its sugar source instead of grapes. And it's the oldest alcoholic beverage in the world. Uh, you just need to really try this stuff. It is wonderful. I really, really loved it. <laughs> really? I was surprised that I loved it so much. It's just tasty. Weird is a nerdy medieval fantasy pop culture loving business that is heavily focused around the community. And it's spelled W-Y-R-D. Uh, and re recently played host to the Rose City Comic Con launch party. So for more information and helping these guys out, it's a small company, uh, or ordering or visiting the meadery, <laughs> go to weirdleatherandmead.com. It's W-Y-R-D-L-E-A-T. 
T-H-E-R-A-N-D-M-E-A-D.com. Weird, spelled W-Y-R-D, weirdleatherandmead.com. And become a warrior of weird. Uh, congratulations, guys. I hope you guys do well, and I hope people uh, purchase some stuff. By the way, if you want to listen to the podcast or if you want to continue listening, please subscribe. Please write a review. Tell your friends. And also, Ryan, tell us the handles that they could follow the podcast. I follow at Inside of You Pod on Twitter and at Inside of You Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. That is correct. So thank you for listening. Thank you for enjoying the show. If you do enjoy it and continue to write me and tell me what you think. Um, I think that's about it. Uh, make sure you uh, donate if you can to Echoes of Hope and uh, check out Weird, W-Y-R-D, their metery. I love those guys and I just want to give them a little props. Is there anything wrong with that? That was really cool. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Let's get inside of one of my favorite people. Uh, Jason Alexander has been around for a long time. He's not old and he looks really good, but uh, I love talking to him and uh, I was excited. I felt like a kid in a candy store. And uh, he had some admiration for me. Mutual, we had mutual admiration, and uh, it was a real treat. So uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Uh, we get a little deep. Let's get inside of Jason Alexander. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. Hey, you look really good. Stop it. Finish your thought. No, so I, <laughs> that was the that was the thought. You 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 look good. You look healthy. You look uh, refreshed. You look like you uh, you're sleeping none well. Of the, none of the above, but, but bless you. <laughs> do you not do you not sleep well? Uh, I'm old. You know, that's a thing that comes with age. Seriously, that it, I find um, so I'm about to turn 62. It's not old, by the way. I find for the last three years, you know, it's like if you get three hours and then you're kind of up and then it's a little hard to get back down, you get another two to three. So like six hours is a big night for me. I used to be an eight hour guy, nine hour guy. But and I used to remember my grandparents would, you know, they never slept. And I'd go, Grandma, go to sleep. And she just, I think it's one of those things. It just, <laughs> it's a hormonal change. Like you just don't need it? Is it? Do you not need as much sleep when you are when you get older? I think you need it just as much. But I think if you go back to the caveman days, you know, who, who was really vulnerable? Kids, little kids, and old people. And I think they were wired to wake up every now and then in case there was a lion in the cave or something. <laughs> you know, it was self-preservation. We haven't weaned out of it yet. Do you go to bed stressed? Do you have anything to stress about it these days? Uh, you know, uh... depends on the day. Do you know anyone who is like, <laughs> I'm stress free right now. The I, world is good. <laughs> I feel like I'm the only one. I feel like I'm the only one that stresses about everything. No, I think everybody is is stressed out of their minds at this point. I don't. I don't know how you can. I mean, I, listen. I I don't stress about things that a lot of people stress about. I'm not worried about how am I going to pay the rent or put food on the table. Thank right. God. But, but I think everybody is stressed out. If, if you're engaged with the world, you're, you're concerned. Uh, and some of those concerns can be existential at some times. And uh, yeah, I think, I think people stress. Yeah. Do you remember meeting me? Tell me where it was. That'll help. I mean, well, I, here's why I feel I know you and you know, I'm not gonna, I won't do the suck up for the whole thing, but I, I was a major Smallville geek, major. And when you came on, I went, they got it right. Holy crap, they got it right. It was so 
It was such oh, smart on. casting on their part, but really smart writing and playing on your part. It was such an interesting, complex character and un, kind of unknowable as to what the real agenda was going to be. And so smart on your part for a number of reasons. One, it, it was just good work. But we all know and when you're doing a TV series, you don't know what these guys are going to do next. You know, they no. can throw you a bone in episode eight where you go, if I'd known that, I would have come at this a whole different way. <laughs> so you you had so much leeway. You know, it was such a smart, okay, I, I can go this way, I can go this way. What do you got? Where are we going? How are we going? And I just remember I, I used to say to my wife, this guy is good. He's good. Do you know <laughs> how, how good that makes me feel? I mean, coming from you, that I mean, look, you're a legend. And my, my brother is more excited even about this than I am about that I'm talking to you today. <laughs> but we met... But that means the world to me. It really does. And I know oh. I, it just does. And in fact, I remember it was at Norby Walters. Oh, we played poker, right? We played poker. And you just, exactly. you know, I was like, oh, my God, Jason Alexander shared Jason Alexander. And you're like, and you said something like that. You said something like, I love your work on the show or something. And it just was like, oh, what? It was, it's amazing when you're uh, the guys you look up to or women you look up to that they, they say something like that is just, it, it, have you had that in your life where somebody? I, I have. I, I mean, I've had it often and it's always surprising. <laughs> I remember um, I had worked for Neil Simon, you know, back in the 80s when I was mostly doing theater in New York. And I had a lovely time with him, but we never got close. But somehow I was invited during the Seinfeld years to his home for to celebrate a birthday of his. And I was the only person there I'd, I'd never heard of, you know, so. And Johnny Carson was there. And I so wanted to talk to him and just say thank you for all that, all those wonderful years. Right. But I was very intimidated. I thought, he's not going to know who I am. And, I, you know, he gets bothered all the time. And I, and I sort of psyched myself out. And the third time I passed him, he got up and said, I just want to say uh, I love your work on the show. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And now I had to, like, make up the excuses for why I had walked by him two times without saying anything. <laughs> I was so intimidated. I didn't want to bother you. But, it, yeah, I, um, I, I'll tell you the one that killed me. Killed me. Um, I had never met Dick Van Dyke oh. uh, up to the point of this story. But I, <laughs> I did a TV movie of Bye Bye Birdie in the role that he created. And it went on the air and it was fine. It was fine. I was proud of it. It was fine. And the following day, I don't know how he got my address. I got flowers and a bottle of champagne. Come and a note on. that said, Dear Jason, now I know how to play the role. Thank you. You were great. Big Van Dyke. And I went, oh, come on. Come on. Do you, it, that's, it, it's, that's stupid. Do, that's you, stupid. do you save things like that? Yes. I save all this shit. I save if somebody wrote a letter, so I took a picture with someone, it's on the wall. Yeah, you bet. Because I've always felt like my career could be over tomorrow. That's it. Every time I'm working, it could be over tomorrow. <laughs> and at least I'll have, you know, being a fan, I'll have all this right. in my house like a museum. And I could say to somebody one day, I met that person. I did Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, what's, the, what's the one thing you have at your house that you keep? You that's know, um, I, I have a bunch of stuff. The stuff that I really kind of put out that I don't have in a book somewhere are, are things like, um, I worked for Stephen Sondheim. That was my Broadway debut. Yeah. Stephen Sondheim. 
it was and first day on the job. He said, everybody, please call me Steve. But, you know, and I've, I've worked with him many times and I guess we have, I've never hung out with him, but we have a lovely rapport, but he, I'm always so aware that I'm working with a very extraordinary human being. And I've never quite been comfortable and relaxed around him. My fault, not his, you know, it's just what I carry. Right. And uh, several years, about 15 years ago, he was celebrating his 75th birthday and he was interviewed in the New York Times and he made a comment about, I think my time may have passed. I don't know if I'm relevant anymore. I don't know that I have anything else to offer. And, and I wrote him uh, a letter. I don't know what possessed me to do this. I wrote him a, a pretty long letter that said, Stephen, I have a 10-year-old son that can sing one-third of your canon. And the only reason he doesn't sing the rest of it is he doesn't quite understand what it's about. He will. Uh, I said, and he is not an unusual kid. He is, you, you are continuing to touch people around the world. Everyone that I know who loves the theater waits in anticipation of anything you are willing to share with us next, be it a revival, a new piece or what. And I finished it by quoting him. I said, there was a, a great man of the theater once wrote, anything you do, let it come from you. Then it will be new. Give us more to see. Give us more to see. And I sent that off. He sent me back a card, you know, where he said, sometimes the right thing comes at the right time. Your words came at exactly the right time. Thank you. I am reinvigorated. I, I believe you. Please give my best to your son. And, you know, wow. it was just, it was, a, and I had never had that kind of heartfelt exchange with Steve. And the fact that it, that it came back in that way and that it had meant something to him, I, that card is framed and sitting, you know, up on a mantle. So it's that it's too. things like that. It's it, it's it's usually not from people um, who I don't know and I'm surprised that I have that have said something nice. It's from people that I know and I've always kind of been like, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to bother them. I don't want. To, I don't know. know. We're not friends truth, exactly. You know? We're not friends. Yeah. What are we? Uh, you know, let's right. just keep it the exactly. way it is. Yeah, um, so it's it's when people like that kind of go, hey, you know, you have value to me. I go, oh, okay. I love that. Inside of You is brought to you by Netflix. Battle Creek, Michigan, 1963. Kellogg's and Post, sworn cereal rivals, race to create a pastry that will change the face of breakfast forever. A wildly imaginative tale of ambition Betrayal and menacing milkmen, sweetened with artificial ingredients. Unfrosted stars Jerry Seinfeld in his directorial debut. It features a supporting cast of comedy greats, including Melissa McCarthy, Jim Gaffigan, Hugh Grant, Amy Schumer, Max Greenfield, Christian Slater, Sarah Cooper, Bill Burr, and many more. Friday, May 3rd, only on Netflix. Inside of you is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. This is an amazing platform. I use it on both podcasts. It has worked wonders for me. It's so amazing how easy it is to navigate. If you want to sell products, t-shirts, soap scents, whatever, whatever it is, Ryan, you want to sell, this is the way to do it. Uh, you can see what your best seller is right there, analytics, uh, how much you're making this month, uh, what products are selling the best. 
it's really fantastic. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to, to the did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash inside, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash inside now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash inside. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I mean, you're very humble, but you, you've done everything. I mean, you really have. I mean, you actor, comedian, film and stage director, magician, dancer. You've done Broadway. You've won a Tony. You've won. At this point in your life, it's like, do you really need to do anything? And you keep doing things like the, the show Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is one of the best shows around. You appeared on that and you're always, do you feel like you love, just love working or do you feel like, you need some more, you need structure. You I mean, do you, you seem like someone who just loves to do what they do. Uh, I do. I, I, um, you're, you're right. I don't, you know, I could step back and agree and say, I don't need to, or I don't need to make a living. Thank you, God and Jerry Seinfeld. But um, <laughs> I, I enjoy being challenged by something. Unfortunately, a lot of the things that come to me as an actor are not, terribly challenging. They're, they're knockoff versions of something somebody has seen me do before and they, in, in their heart of hearts, they'd like me to recreate it, you know? Um, and that stuff doesn't interest me. But if somebody says, um, like you and I would not want to be an actor on a mediocre show, but if somebody says, Hey, would you direct this? I go, well, that's interesting because can I, Elevate. As a director, elevate this thing in some right. way. That's an interesting challenge. So by by being challenged, you open yourself up to a range of things that you might not otherwise want to do. And, you know, the variety of things that I've sort of forced myself to, to do have always come from, well, that could be interesting. Like the, the second Broadway show I did was a musical called The Rink. And when I went for the first audition, they went, you roller skate, right? And I went, oh, of course, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Never been on them in my life. And they said, well, in two weeks, you come back and we're going to do the, the skating audition. So in two weeks, I had to go get an education on. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I look back on and I go, well, that was sheer madness. That was just stupid to say that I could do something with proficiency that I had never done. But it was also, 
stroke of genius because in two weeks you go out and you fumble your way through it. And then I got that gig. So that's how I've stumbled onto most of the stuff I've had to learn to do. You know, can you be a, do you used to do stand-up comedy? No. Well, here's an opportunity. Oh, okay. Oh, give it a shot. <laughs> you really? Know? You have, you're, you're fearless. You're still fearless after all these years. I'm, I'm, I, I have, um, I, 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 I am aware I'm daunted. I'm not undaunted, but I also look at it and go, you know, if I screw it up, nobody dies. Nobody gets hurt. It's okay. I wish I thought like uh, that. All I can be is a little embarrassed and humiliated. And if it goes well, it was an experience. So. I wish I thought like that. I, I remember watching an interview with you and you were doing an episode uh, of Seinfeld, the Marine biologist. Uh, you were doing it and they they didn't have it and so they asked you at the end tell this story because to to me it just scared the shit out of me that really? that they could say can you how fast can you learn a monologue um well really that story is i tell this this story all the time because it's to me it's a testament to to Jerry and Larry David about not giving up on something until it's right so we the ending of that episode um, for those people who may not remember it, my storyline was Jerry had met an old a girl that I had always wanted to date in high school, and in order to impress her on my behalf, told her that I was a marine biologist. And then when he tells me that, I go, I can't, that's not one of the things I can fake. I don't know how to fake that. So I was trying to pawn myself off as a marine biologist. And my storyline in that episode ended when I was walking with her on the beach and there's suddenly a beached whale and somebody yells out, is there a marine biologist? And you see me, you know, like uh, I'm a dead man walking off into the ocean to see if I can do anything as well. That was the end of my story. And then the taping in front of the live audience, there was a scene that I wasn't in with Jerry and Kramer and maybe Lynn, but I think it was just Jerry and Kramer, which was supposed to be the end of Kramer's storyline. And it was fine. It was funny, but... It, 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 I guess the guys just weren't satisfied with the live audience response. They just thought it wasn't good enough to be the out for the show. So as they always did, the writers circled the wagons and the band started to play. And these, and then Larry came over and he went, they, clearly they had gotten a, a, an inspiration in the circle. Larry said, how long would it take you to learn a monologue? I said, how long, a, how long a monologue? He said, I don't know, a page and a half. I said, couple minutes, you know, what? and he had written this monologue, you know, the sea was angry that day. My friends and Kramer had a storyline where he had been hitting golf balls into the ocean to practice his drive, but they had never thought of why would there be a beached whale up? Oh, there's a golf ball in the blowhole. So when they had that inspiration, they wrote this monologue for George to reveal that he went out and pulled the golf ball out of the blowhole. There's no time or place to rehearse it. So they put some screens up between us and the audience. We got on into the set and the camera guys were given their shots. We did one run through of it just for ourselves, just to make sure we had the lines. And they pulled the screens away and said to the audience, they're going to try something. We'll see if it works. And what you see when you watch that episode is the first and only time we shot that new rewrite. And that became one of the most it's one of the big highlight laughs of the entire series. That was a laugh when I eventually pulled the golf ball out of my pocket to show it to, to Kramer. Is that a Titleist? Is that a Titleist? <laughs> it, there, there was a solid minute or more of laughter, which 
that's a lot of laughing where you can't go on. You can't do the next line because the audience is laughing that hard. That was huge. I mean, but to me, if a director came up and said, how fast can you learn a monologue? I'd probably say a week, maybe a week. Very, very, a monologue. I mean, what if you said you couldn't, like your mind doesn't work like that. Do you think any cast member could have done that? Uh, I know Julia could have done it. Um, I don't know. Probably Jerry could have done it. I don't know about Mike, but because uh, Mike's Mike was always more of a physical guy than the words. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, it's just one of those things I never struggled with. I I, I, learned, I did a one man play in Los Angeles years ago where I played Harry Truman. I mean, it's a play. It's a two act play. You know, I learned it in two weeks. It was, two weeks. It was, you probably learned fifty monologues. It was it was eighty pages of a monologue. Yeah. 80 pages you learn in two weeks and give a performance on. But no, but you know, there are, there are some people that that is a real, that's Sisyphus, you know, pushing. I I never had a problem with memorizing dialogue. I I wish I could apply that to anything else I read. I wish I could do it with math or history or science or anything else I studied. I'd be a genius. If someone just wrote it down as a play I'd have it in a What a gift that is. It's a photographic yeah. memory, right? You have a photographic memory. For that. Just for that. It, it was the, it was. Still to I this day? Know. Still to this day? If someone Pretty gave you much. a monologue? I yeah, I don't, I don't struggle much with lines. Yeah. So you never worry about lines at all? Because that's always like the biggest thing for me. I need time. I want to really get into this. I really need the, mm-hmm. you know. You don't. You are so no, lucky. But, That's a beautiful but honestly, thing. Don't don't uh, think less of yourself. I, I, I know <laughs> all kinds of wonderful actors that really struggle for lines. It just it's not. It, it, that's not how they're wired, and some people are. And I don't think it's a character flaw. I just think it's in the wiring. So, what about as a kid? Like, were you a smart kid? Were you? Do you remember to get good grades? I had I had fine grades. Um, I was not a man, you know, it's it's like, I can't remember which side of the brain is creativity. Whatever side was creativity, that was okay. The other side was dysfunctional. I couldn't do math or science. Once math, once they introduced letters into math, I went, okay, I'm lost. <laughs> I, thought, I thought this was all about numbers. What's going on? Um, and I couldn't hold abstract facts. So like, you know, two carbon atoms and an oxygen atom makes it, I just couldn't hold that stuff. Right. But English, history, the humanities, all that stuff, great. Bring it on. If you told me a story, I had it. But there was no story to chemistry and math, so I, I was lost. I love the how much adversity you faced. I mean, I think you did because I read these two things, and you've talked about them. But the fact that, you know, you loved magic and, you know, somebody said, uh, you can't really do that. Uh, you could explain the story, right? I want you to talk about that. But then the other one was when you went to Boston University, you know, they were like, uh, you know, you'll never do Hamlet because, you know, you're more of a character guy. You're, you're too right. short. You're too whatever. Facing that kind of rejection early on is could be crippling. And you could be like, I'm done. I'm out of it. I'm never going to do magic again. I'm never going to do acting again. Whatever it is. But first start out because you were crazy about magic growing up. Yeah, because I was, um, I have older, I have half siblings that are 14 and 20 years older than me. So I didn't really grow up with them. And my, both of my parents worked. So I was like a latchkey kid and I was a shy kid. And I, um, and, and so I didn't have a, a big circle of friends. And uh, I was, I was 
kind of small and always a little heavy. So I was an easy target for the bullies. And I walked around kind of fearful. And, and magic made me feel powerful. It's like, ooh, I can do something somebody else can't. So that's why I liked it. But I really did love it. And I, I got pretty serious about it. Even as a little kid, I really spent a lot of time working on the stuff. And I wanted to be a close-up guy. I wanted to do, I wanted to make the magic in my hands. And by the time I was 12, 13 years old, I knew enough kids who were into it. I went to a magic camp, basically. And I was trying to work on this But stuff. a prestigious camp, right? Was it yeah, a- it was Tannen's magic camp. Right. Um, and the, the one of the you know pros looked at my hands and he said, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time because you got little hands. It, to this day, I can barely palm a standard playing card. It, a, a, one little corner will always peek out, or I have to spread my fingers and you can see it. And so it eliminated a lot of card possibilities for me. And once once you took away and and even like coin tricks, it is better to have. A longer finger you can you can just manipulate easier if you have bigger hands right um and he, he basically waved me off of close-up he didn't say don't do magic he just said probably close-up is going to be hard for but you. that's what you wanted to do and that broke my heart so i you know that kind of but it broke my heart because i didn't in that moment have anything that i was equally passionate about and hard on the heels of that came my first opportunity to get into get in with the theater kids and do theater. And that quickly, that passion quickly replaced the magic one. Um, the, the, the thing, the gift that was given to me in college by a professor named Jim Spruill, no longer with us. I thought I was going to be a dramatic actor. I thought I was going to, you know, I was really interested in doing the great dramatic roles, the Shakespearean roles, whatever. Um, and I didn't see myself as particularly amusing or funny you know clearly i was everybody else could see it i couldn't see it right. the mirror the mirror and i were not communicating um so the the second semester of my sophomore year this guy pulls me into his office and i'm you know i'm 20 pounds overweight i'm already starting to lose my hair and he says look i know you your heart and soul is hamlet and i think you'd actually be a terrific hamlet but no one is going to cast you to play hamlet you you should get good at falstaff and he was basically saying, if you want to have a commercially successful career, you've got to start doing more, get more comedy. Go do, think about comedy. And um, it kind of spun my head around because I hadn't really thought about it. And then I created for myself a, a syllabus of, well, study these people. Why are they funny? How are they funny? What are they doing? Who and, did you and, study? Who did you study? Oh, everybody. I went, I went. I, mean, I literally, I, I think I wrote it down on, on a yellow legal pad about people I had to watch and listen to. Right. So I, I already had the comedy albums. I had Carlin and Cosby and Newhart, and, you know, you name it, whoever was putting out albums. Um, and then I went back to things and people that made me laugh. Why was Jerry Lewis funny? Why was Jackie Gleason funny? Why was Lucille Ball funny? Why was Joan Rivers funny? Um and just, you know, really, why were the old silent comics funny? What what physically were they doing that made something that could have been mundane suddenly spectacularly clever? Uh, and just tried to, you know, go, oh, they have kind of a sound that they use. Oh, they do a, they don't see the thing and then they see the thing. Oh, they, they let the, they use obstacles to get them from keeping this. So it was like this 
little tricks here and there. Uh, you know, the one that we used all the time on Seinfeld, and it was a huge, once I went, mm, that's a good one, it covered a multitude of sins. There was a, if you remember the old Honeymooner show, when every Jackie oh, yeah. Gleason would get angry at Alice because Alice was right about something, he'd go, oh, you know, it was just this. <laughs> yes. Ah. Well, I started using that as George. Jerry wow. would say something snide to me and I'd go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it would get a big laugh and i go, Jackie Gleason, okay. So, and George, to me, when I, when I auditioned for the show, I was doing Woody Allen. I was doing a blatant Woody Allen imitation. And that's what got my foot in the door. And then it slowly morphed into Larry David. But, um, you know, my my sensibility about humor is all stolen. <laughs> it's just I think together. we have to steal. We all do. I think there's a little Jim Carrey in me, a little Chris Farley in me, a little sure, Dudley yeah. Moore maybe in me. I don't know. There's like things that I just, I watched Arthur probably a million times. Oh, it's one of yeah. my favorite. He's taking the knife out of the cheese. <laughs> right. You think he likes cheese? Let's see. Let's see if you have it. Ready? Arthur, give me your hand. Well, that would leave you with one. Oh, take my hand. Take my hand. Take my hand. That would leave you with one. My favorite line in Arthur, I think, is when he, she says, when I was six years old, um, my mother died. And he goes, oh, God damn it. Don't they know what that does to children? And when I was 11, my father left me. He's like, oh, so you had six relatively good years. <laughs> right, exactly. That's just a, a dream of it. So after this, so you, it sounds like to me, like you got inspired when this teacher at Boston University said this. And you're like, you started doing all the research. You started doing all this. And the next thing you know, I mean, you're jumping in, you're doing Broadway. Not that, I mean, how long after? Well, I had a little leg up going in because I, I fell into a children's theater company that somehow managed to get itself on TV for one ep episode of a thing when I was 14-ish. And it got seen by a management company. So I had I had reps uh -huh. when I was a young teenager. And I had already started doing commercials by the time I went to college. So I had like, you know, a little a little bit of a of a you might be okay. Um before I went, uh, but I was auditioning for stuff all through college. And then, um, yeah, I got a film, uh, after my, the, the summer, after my junior year, the film ran late, I couldn't get back. So I took one semester off and in that semester, my Broadway debut happened and, you know, things started to really jump. Um, but it was, you know, I, I be, it's not that I, didn't have a sense of humor. It's not that I had never done, like I did the odd couple in high school. I, I, I knew how to do that stuff. But again, <laughs> um, when I went to college for acting, it was like a revelation to me that you could, that there were skills and craft to acting because what I had been doing all along was going, who would be good in this part? Oh, I'll just imitate them. So when I did the odd couple, I did Walter Matthau. I mean, I was just imitating Walter Matthau. Um, Can you do a good Walter Matthau? I could at the time. Felix. <laughs> You're doing yeah. it all wrong, asshole. <laughs> I told you a million times not to leave little notes on my pillow. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. So it was doable. Um, so I, you know, I had, I had felt around on it. I had a sense of humor. My parents were, were funny, you know, funny for non-professional people that could tell a good story. And so, I had some raw material to work with. I had some instincts. I just never valued them. And I then I began to to go, well, you know, being funny could be valuable. That's not a bad thing. What was the first big show? 
the the, the big show, the big Broadway show. That broke for me. Uh, in fact, it's so funny because when I finish with you today, I have to go on Seth Rudetsky's podcast. We're having a reunion. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's been 40 years. It was Stephen Sondheim and, and George Firth wrote uh, a musical version uh, of a play by Kaufman and Hart called Merrily We Roll Along. Mm -hmm. It was directed by Hal Prince. And I was 20 years old when I got that gig. And you just think, well, I'm working with Christ and Moses. This is going to be, <laughs> going to change my career, change my life. And uh, Merrily is a now historic qualified flop. Our, our production was certainly a, a flop by any measure. But the show, because I think mostly because of Sondheim's genius score, the show has been done over and over and over and over. And Ben Platt and Beanie Feldstein are doing a movie version of it that they're going to take 20 years to shoot because it's a show that follows these main characters from the time they're in their late 40s to the time they're in their early 20s. And it goes backwards. And so the cast of this movie is, is they're doing it with Richard Linkletter, who's known for Amazing. doing these 20 year projects. Right. They're filming it now and they film a little bit every year and it'll be done 18 years from now. And hopefully they won't realize what we already know, which is it doesn't really work, but we'll be. <laughs> well, let them learn that for themselves. Yeah, they'll they'll learn. That's, do you prefer doing stage? Because I mean, it seems to me like Broadway, isn't it like eight to t nine shows a week? Only eight, hopefully. Yeah. Isn't that grueling? Um, Isn't that a grueling schedule? It is grueling. Um, it, and it's hard to understand without doing it why it would be so grueling because it looks from the outside like you're only working six days a week. You do have one day off and you're doing eight shows in that in those six days. But, you know, the longest show on Broadway is three hours. So on your worst day, you're working three hours, you get an hour and a half off, you work another three hours, you go home. And it seems like that should be doable. It is... You must live a monastic life. You cannot do anything else. The demands of exploding on a stage that many times a week cost you physically, costs you vocally. Um, you, you can't go to a restaurant and talk over the noise. You can't, if you, if you enjoy a, a drink or two, you, you really can't drink. You have to keep your body in shape. You have to get your rest. You have to kind of conserve what you've got in order to do the job. And theater actors are committed to the job. Uh, you know, they know they have to get it. It has to be there. You can't do another take. You can't, yeah, I'll get it tomorrow. Or... So there's a discipline to being a stage actor that, you, and a joy that accompanies being that, that's either in your DNA or it's not in your DNA. I know glorious actors that I, I, I wish I had a fifth of their talent. They will not get on a stage. They just won't do it. Right. Um, so it's it's either. Have you done a stage? Yeah, I did a ton of plays in college, and then yeah. after I did off off Broadway, like New Jersey Broadway. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I yeah. did. I've done a lot of probably about twenty twenty five plays, and and if given the opportunity, would you do a Broadway run? Uh, I think I think I would if it was the right part. If it was the right yeah show, yeah, I think I would. I. It'd be scary as shit. But did you ever, were your nerves up when you did those things or were you just excited? There was, there was one play and it was a weird period of time. It, it was, I was doing that Neil Simon play, the thing I worked on Neil Simon for. And that was my third Broadway show. So I had, I had had a very happy career going for, you know, a solid eight, nine, 10 years. 
And suddenly in the middle of that play, there was a period where uh, it, the set was a two-story set and that second story was a little dicey and I have a small fear of heights anyway. So I was always a little, a little intimidated working on that second story. But there was a, a period in the play where my character goes to sleep. Uh, it takes a nap in full view of the audience for about 10 minutes while another scene plays out. And then I have to wake up and, and end the first act. And one night, uh, a couple of weeks into the run, as I was lying on that bed, I had an anxiety attack, which I had never had in my life. Wow. And I was, I was panicking. I mean, I felt like my heart was racing. I couldn't breathe. And I thought, how am I going to finish this? I can't. Got through it and, you know, was, came back the next night. And it was like, like, oh, my God, it's here again. It's happening again. It oh. became chronic. And I got really scared. I thought, I can't keep doing this. And I, I talked to a couple of therapists about it, trying to see if it was something I could do medicinally or, you know, and nothing worked. I finally confided in my acting teacher. who was a dear friend of mine. And I said, you know, I'm embarrassed to even share this with you, but I'm having this crippling anxiety every night in the show. And how old are you here? 27. 27. And I said, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm going to ruin the show. I'm going to ruin the thing. And then that, and I'm waiting for this very sympathetic response from him. And, and he comes back at me and he goes, you know, you're a fucking egomaniac. And I went, what? He goes, you're making it all about you. You're going to destroy the play. You're going to do the thing. You're going to do that. You're going to do that. It's not about you. Nobody's there for you. They're there for the story. Tell them the fucking story. And I went, that is brutal. But I went to the theater that night. No anxiety. The next night, no anxiety. It was gone. Are you and serious? Just like I that? Guess he, he must have gotten into some odd spiral that I had done that was just manifesting itself. And he just got me out of me by saying that. And I, and believe me, I, I, I studied with this Larry Moss and I had studied with Larry Moss for four or five years up to that point, And I stayed with him another 10 after that point. So he was, he was my guy, but yeah, that was, that was crippling. And there's always the, the, the good nerves, the, the, you know, I, I'm excited about this. I want to do, if there's, if you're not feeling anything like that, it's time to hand the part over to somebody else. Yeah. There should be a little bit of, Oh, all right, let's go. I'm excited about this. Let's play. And if, if that's not happening. So what happened later in life? You started, if you got anxiety, then you go to your wife and she goes, Oh, shut the F you have a family. It's all about you. This it's family, all it's, it's all, it's all about you. You maniac. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I'd opened a very bad door. I'm not allowed to have a bad day. <laughs> had it, you know, you said you had a really tough audition process during when you did Pretty Woman. Well, it wasn't tough. It just, I had one uh, audition meeting with Gary Marshall, and uh, he, he, <laughs> he said, it's good. You could do it. It's good. It's, it's good, do you think? Yeah. <laughs> Which is good feedback, but <laughs> Great. He, there was no way he wanted me for this part. He, I was not what he had in his head. He thought I was too young, uh, too baby-faced, and uh, too small. Um, I, he knew that there was this physical confrontation with Richard Gere's role. And uh, I, I think the line that the casting director told me is, Gary, Gary felt like it would look like Richard was beating up a dwarf. And since uh, Disney was, Disney's producing this film and, you know, they're protective of dwarves. So uh, Gary, I was a non-starter for Gary. And without naming the actor he wanted, because that wouldn't be fair, but he knew who he wanted and they couldn't make a deal with that actor. 
the, the guy just wouldn't do it for the money. He wasn't interested. And now the movie was shooting and that role has to start and they don't have anybody. And the casting director, a woman named Diane Crittenden, loved me for this role. She just, she kept bringing me up and Gary would get angrier and angrier to the point where he said, if you, if you say his name again, I'm going to fire you, <laughs> you know? And I think it was like days before this character had to start. And she, she somehow got Richard Gere to agree to have me go to his office. And she was, she brought a video camera and our height difference, you know, was not, it was not nothing. So she, they put phone books on the floor and I stood on the phone books to sort of approximate Richard's height a little more. And we played one scene that she shot. And then Richard took that tape to Gary, threw it on his desk and went, this is the guy. And it was under those circumstances that I walked into Pretty Woman with a director that was not crazy to have me there. But then at the end of our first day, he, he went, I was wrong. You're it's the best we could have. And so he, he did a complete 180. So Richard Gere stuck up for you and fought for you. He did. He did. Richard, I I mean, because of Diane Crittenden and Richard Gere, that movie happened for me. Without both of them, it would not have happened. And how did you, how long did you have to prepare for that role? Uh, a day. <laughs> I mean, I think <laughs> we made that we made that tape on a Wednesday or Thursday, uh, and I had to. I think I started shooting on Monday or Tuesday. And how pumped were you? You're doing a movie with Richard Gere. Was this like, well, the, this is the, one of the biggest things you, you're doing right now? Yeah, oh, of course. First of all, it's a, it's a movie. I mean, it's like a real, I had done a movie, but it was not like that. This was a, this was a movie. And I think I would have been on cloud nine, except A, it was happening so fast. And B, I was really, I knew this director doesn't, he's not behind me. He, he's not happy I'm here. And Pretty Woman was a movie, Richard, when I got in the makeup trailer on the first day, Richard had been shooting for a couple of weeks. And he said, uh, get ready, because I don't know what movie we're making here. I, <laughs> I, I said, what do you mean? He said, you, you'll see, you'll see. So, I mean, it's a famous story now, but Pretty Woman the, on paper was, was a much more serious film. Uh, they didn't end up together at the end. The, the depiction of life as a street prostitute was a little more realistic uh it didn't have a lot of its charms and gary was in some ways manufacturing this movie out of his head so you'd get on the set and thinking you were going to do one thing and you'd wind up doing something completely different so my first day i walk onto the set and it's a short scene about the the business machinations between our two characters and you know, I had a couple of things. I said, well, my character must be very deferential to this rich, powerful boss. He's going to be... I had some ideas, not many, but... And Richard had on a very fancy pair of shoes that day. They were just gorgeous, but they were, like, striking. For a men's shoe, it was a very striking shoe. And Gary noticed it, and so when we came over to rehearse, we started running the dialogue, and Gary went, wait, wait. When Richard comes in, talk about his shoes. All right. Okay. <laughs> and so I started busting Richard's chops about, hey, ooh, pretty fancy. Look at you, Tinkerbell. Where are you? you know, uh, so we're playing <laughs> and Gary's laughing. He goes, let's shoot it. So we, we shoot maybe one line from the script and a bunch of 
yelling gobbledygook about shoes. And Gary goes, cut, good, let's move on. What? And I go, well, wait a minute, what about the, the, the other lines? And he goes, shoes are good. And I look at Richard and Richard goes, that's what I'm talking about. So oh my God. We, we, when we wrapped Pretty Woman, we, we all had a great time, but we thought this will never see the light of day. It's, there's no really? movie, there's no story. There's nothing here. And Gary had it all. We just couldn't see the forest for the trees. Now, did they make you wear apple boxes since in the audition, you, they made you taller for the thing? Did you, there, uh, there were times when a man maker was called for. <laughs> yes. Is that what it's called, a man maker? You know, the, the little inch and a half box, it's not really an apple box. It's, Quarter it's like apple. They call it a pancake. A pancake. But uh, in my case, they always called it a man maker. So it's just kind oh, of you know, normal man statue. Yes, yeah, so many, many a time. Now, because of Pretty Woman, that's how the whole George Costanza came out, right? That's how you get... Sort that of. is part of the mythology that I've been told. So somehow Gary Marshall, they were looking for George. Gary Marshall married to Penny, Mar uh, no. Penny Marshall, <laughs> Penny Marshall, ex-wife of Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner had a castle rock. He says, oh, I heard this guy. I saw a clip from the movie. He might be good. You should put him on tape. That's what I've heard is that somehow it played in. And that's how it kind of started. So how did you get this? I mean, I know you've probably told this story a million times, but to get this audition, because I want to hear about the kind of the Neil, the, uh, the, uh, what's his name? Woody Allen kind of thing. And you put the glasses on. Yeah. So again, my, I lived in New York at the time. Uh, all the, all the casting on Seinfeld was being done in LA. They had seen a gazillion people, I guess, for George, some very famous who I think had been offered the role and either turned it down or they got next. Or Do you know any of them or you don't say? Yeah, I know. Chris Rock, Danny DeVito. The, the guy, one of the guys they really liked for it, and he, I think he said no, was Paul Schaefer. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, they were kind of a little all over the map. And uh, somebody said, you know, we should put some doctors on, <clears throat> we should get some New York actors into the mix. So that meant calling a New York casting director and just saying, look, We'll send you a couple of pages. We're looking for a sidekick, you know, a funny sidekick, best friend to Jerry Seinfeld. About this age, you know, no real description, just sort of a your 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 standard young youngish character actor. And you were like, who the hell is Jerry Seinfeld at this point? You probably didn't really know. Uh, I I was a fan of Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, you were performed many times. You know, I I didn't know who the hell Larry David was. But oh, I, I knew Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> right, right. So I was one of the ones. Uh, I maybe through this Gary Marshall connection, and, and they called and said, uh, put him on tape. And all I had was four pages from the pilot script with no context and nobody to ask about it because the casting director didn't know the project. She was just being paid to put some people on tape. So you quickly memorize them, of course. Memorizing, no problem. <laughs> uh, but I went, what do I do? With, what is this thing? So it, to me, it read like the dialogue in a Woody Allen film. And I went, all right, let's go with that. So I, I, I didn't wear glasses at the time. I went out and got, you know, got some frames. And I, I not only did a New York, a thick New York accent, I literally was doing Woody Allen. I, you know, I was the gestures and the, in the, the that, voice. that voice that voice yeah it, I, jerry it's it's ridiculous it's you know I, i'm doing woody allen there's blatantly nobody would mistake it maybe not a good woody allen but definitely a guy trying to do woody allen wow and i finished the tape and i went i never i'll never say that again that that you know 
And a couple of days later, got a call, I think, from Larry. Um, said, love everything you're doing. You know, coming out. We want to have you meet Jerry. You'll read for the network. And I flew out. And they said, don't change a thing except not don't do the Woody Allen voice. Do New York. Do the glasses. Do all that. But just don't do the Woody Allen voice. And I show up to read for the network. And there's one other person reading that day. Now, I don't know Jerry Seinfeld, though. But I do know one thing, and that is one of his best friends in the world, at least at the time, was the comedian Larry Miller, yeah. who I had been a pretty woman with. And that's the other guy reading that day. And I go, uh, well, this is the writings on the wall. Of course, he's going to use his buddy. He doesn't know me. So so I went in to do the reading. And I was loose. I was loosey-goosey. And I just had a great time going, I'm not going to get this. So just have fun. And I guess we, you know, we just clicked. And I, I, I left the audition got on a plane that night, came back to New York. And by the time I landed, they went, you got it. So, And you didn't know, I mean, obviously you didn't have any idea if this was going to be a success. You shoot the pilot. Did you, when you did it, were you like, did it feel like sort of like the pretty woman atmosphere? Like, what the hell are we doing here? What is this? Well, there's a funny, there's a funny moment where, you know, we were having our rap party on the pilot and Jerry says to me, what do you think? think you think uh, we got a shot? And I honestly, I wasn't trying to be funny. I went, you know, I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he said, "Why you don't think you don't think it's good?" I said, "No, no, no. I I do think it's good. That's part of the problem." I, I said, "You know, at the time that we made that pilot, the number one comedy on TV was Alf." <laughs> the, it felt to me like our show was designed for an audience of men, not women, men, maybe twenty to thirty-five years old who lived in a city. And better if they were Jews. That seemed to be the audience, right? And I went, outside of that audience, no one's, and those people don't watch TV. I think it is funny. I don't watch TV. So there's not going to be an audience for this, and they're not going to do well. I was kind of right. It tested horribly, horribly. Really? And they did not pick it up as a pilot. They didn't pick it up. But in those days, the networks to fill space would just throw the dead pilots on. They'd find a time slot and kill a time slot with, a dead pilot. And they aired the pilot and a critic, I think it was TV Guide, the critic wrote it a love letter. And everybody went, huh. Everybody, not me. I mean, the people at NBC right. went, huh, I wonder if we missed something here. And they decided they would give it another shot by making it a summer sort of special, a series of specials. And with that meager order of four more episodes, we and, and the the addition of Julia, who was not in the pilot. Um, we made four more, and they tested terribly, too. But we kept hanging in there because the people that did watch were that audience I was talking about, men from 20 to 35 years old, which was a very tough demographic for advertisers to get. And the fact that they were our audience, there was always somebody willing to pay the advertising time to air the show. So that's, that's why we hung wow. in there as long as we did. How long did it take to really feel like you guys were together in this like it, you just meshed you you felt like something was because in the pilot usually the pilot he's still figuring it out you're looking for out for your own ass you don't yeah. really know that let him do him let her do her i'll do me when did it finally i mean did you feel like there was any magic or any kind of connection or did it take a while how long yeah no so from the get what was interesting is because you rehearse like a play, you know, you rehearse for several days. Yeah. 
I find on single camera shows, if you're not in the scene, either you don't, you have no reason to be at the studio, or if you're there and you're waiting for your scene, you're in your dressing room. You're, you're hanging, you're not hanging out on the set. Right. We hung out on the set. Nobody ever left the stage and we'd watch scenes we weren't in and go, Hey, you know, maybe, you know, it might be funny if you, you know, we were kind of helping each other. Wow. And I would say, so we did a pilot and then we did four. <laughs> four more pilots. Um, yeah, four episodes. And then <laughs> they decided we would be a mid-season show. So we came back to do 13. Wow. And somewhere very early in that 13, I noticed that we were all like, help. We instead of fighting for a bit for yourself, I remember saying this line that I have would be so much funnier on Julia. I mean, it would just be so unexpected. It's, it's, it was just a dig at Jerry. And I, I said, it would just be more unexpected if it came out of her mouth. And so we tried it and it worked so much better. And that became sort of the thing of, we weren't precious about it. It has to be me. It has to be me. It was, it, it, the only time I ever made a stink, and Larry David will tell you that it, <laughs> it was notorious, is somewhere, I think in the four episodes, of the, it might have been the 13, they did an episode that I was not in. I wasn't in it and Kramer wasn't in it. It was about Jerry and Elaine going to Florida to visit his family. I remember that one. And um, I came back the following week and we got to the table read and we did the table read. And then I, I said to Larry and Jerry, can I talk to you guys for a minute. Now, remember, I was just visiting LA. I, this show was not a hit. So every time we were in, I had, I had left my home, sometimes with my wife, sometimes not, you know, because we weren't making big money. So I couldn't always afford to just have her with me. And, and the show was by no means performing in any way that looked like the success it would become. So I said to them, look, guys, um, I'm happy to be here. I'm thrilled to be here if you need me. But if you don't need me to be in this show, I don't want to be in the show. I, I can go back and do the career I had. I was perfectly happy, I'm happy here. But I said to Larry, if you write me out again, do it permanently. And he he went through the head. He just went, it's not possible. How do you, you can't, it's four people. I can't, you know, he was like apoplectic. And I went, I hear you, I get it. I don't want to be that guy, but Honestly, I don't need to be here unless I need to, unless I'm needed here. And I look back at it now and go, Jesus Christ, what were you doing? <laughs> but at the time, it felt like I was making a sacrifice in my life to do this show that wasn't performing for anybody yet. And I was very happy to go back and go back to Broadway and stuff that I knew I could reliably wow. get. And so I was, I was a uh, cavalier. <laughs> wow. You just said what you wanted to say and didn't give a shit. But he wasn't necessarily um, mad at you, though, was he? He wasn't mad. Uh, I, well, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, he, you know, we've talked about it in interviews where he went, "You little asshole." What are we, you know? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I know. But you know, but I did feel that way because I, 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 I felt like it was very possible when I did the pilot. There was no Elaine. There was no other best friend. There was the annoying neighbor. And me, and that was the show right. and the star. Now they have this girl come in and she's not his girlfriend. She's his ex-girlfriend. So she's his female friend. And I went, well, now you got two best friends. So you give it, 
do you write for the girl? Do you write for the guy? The girl's going to be more interesting. My part's going to go, not not line wise, but they just won't. There was no there was no character yet. There wasn't you know you didn't know why you needed George or why you needed Elaine or whose story would tell what. So I just thought, well, I'm one of us is going to be superfluous, and now it looks like it's going to be me because <laughs> I'm so, not in this episode. <laughs> yeah, so I don't you know I don't want to be the the character they don't need. I just don't want to be that guy. Right. So that's that's why I said that. But who broke the most on the set? The one that just couldn't keep their shit together, always laughing. And who is your favorite? Who and who's the one who made you crack up the most? Oh well, Jerry would always. I mean, you can watch the episodes yeah, and yeah. see Jerry on the verge of breaking all the time. Jerry Jerry was the easiest to break. But when Julia would go, when Julia broke, she took everybody with her. When she started laughing, it was impossible to not. I could I could stay in character with Jerry. I, everybody lost it with, with Julia. The one who killed me more often than not was Jerry Stiller. Really? There was just... Well, first of all, I, I, I'm madly in love with him. I, yeah. I just... He, one of the joys of my life was, was sharing time with him. But um, there was something about... About Jerry Stiller is so not Frank Costanza. They are just like totally different people. And where Jerry had to go to dig that character up, and he had, this is the secret of Frank Costanza. Jerry had line issues. He really thought he couldn't remember his lines. He could, but he was really concerned about it. And the way they would come to him in performance was in like three words at a time. And he would get so frightened and frustrated by it that it created the rhythms of the Frankenstein's character. And they were just so odd and crazy and had nothing to do with the reality of the situation. So what it, what it inferred was this tortured backstory of this poor man who has to deal with these people. <laughs> it was just funny. And he would have malapropisms because he'd remember the lines just the wrong way. And he also had that great, hangdog face that when it would get close you you just had to hold on and go all right i'm gonna i'm gonna try and get through this so um he could break he and estelle who played my, my mom yeah they could break they could break me pretty easily but um they weren't trying to but they they could i, I have a lot of bloopers with them does your uh family like seinfeld do your kids watch seinfeld have they seen no. it do they care was your wife always like this is a great show i love it my wife was very much a part of the reason I was successful at it because while Dana is not an actress, she doesn't do that. She did study to be an actress and she studied with Larry Moss, who was my guru. In fact, she introduced me to Larry Moss. Um, so Dana, the way I come at stuff is, is a way that Dana understands. And she came to the first, we did 180 episodes. I think Dana was at a hundred tables. Wow. And you know, I would do the first take of a scene and Larry would come over and give me a note or Jerry would. And then I'd go over to Dana and she'd say something and I'd go, right, right. And incorporate it. So she was very much in my ear uh, and on my shoulder in the creation of that character. Um, and she was invested in the show. My kids, no, I, I think, uh, I mean, the story I've told before is um, when my older son Gabe was about 12 um, that's when his peers were becoming aware of the show and he would hear, you know, hey, your father's George and blah, 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 blah. and he had never watched it. 
right. you know, he was he he knew what it was because it was where Daddy went to work, but he could care less. <laughs> and uh, he finally said, "What is this? What what is it? What, what is the show?" So I had videos of him at the time, and I said, "Well, here's a couple of funny episodes. Going to take a look. This is what it is." So he goes in the TV room and he watches two or three episodes, and he came out, and I'm you know I'm waiting for him to go, "Hey, that's good. You're funny." You know, I go, "What do you think?" And he goes. You're kind of an asshole, <laughs> and that was his assessment of the whole thing. That's amazing. Um, it's not something my boys were. My, I, I think both of my sons, while um, appropriately proud of their father, um, have a healthy disinterest in most of what I do, <laughs> <laughs> and because they're both. Uh, my my older son Gabe uh, is absolutely an actor and a writer and very funny guy um, who would love to have a career the way we do and lives under the shadow of well my dad was this and my dad has this level of success and that never helps the son or the daughter of um, and my younger son who does uh, voice acting so he doesn't aspire to everything I do but you know he's peripherally in the business through that. Uh, Eric. But they really are unimpressed with showbiz <laughs> and me, and um, that's probably healthy, isn't it? it? I think it's. I think it's healthy. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. You know, I, I love this story. How Jerry Seinfeld used to have you guys come in his dressing room every every Christmas, like at the halfway point of the season, and he used to say, "Another, like, should we do another season?" Right. And you guys all would be like, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, you know, you, you, of course, let's do it. Yeah. And I just just briefly just you could talk. I just want you to talk about that. The final season where you both felt you you, you all felt like this is it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, my my memory is we probably came into that season going. Feels like we're getting there. And it wasn't that I Larry David left after the seventh season and we did two more seasons after that for me personally the loss of larry was a big loss because larry was george yeah. and larry had an understanding of that character in the scripts that nobody else could have and so for me while there were good stories and good writing the the essence of the character was a little diminished because he wasn't there to help fill that void um but we got to the halfway point of the uh, of the final, what became the final season, and we got into the room, and Jerry went, "What do you think?" And for the first time, he wasn't sort of leading the witness. He wasn't going, "What do you think?" Yeah, we got another run. <laughs> he was like, "Seriously, what do you guys think?" And we all we all voiced the yeah. It's probably it's probably not a bad idea to let it go. And I know for me personally what it was about. I felt like the, the, the show could continue to be funny because the writers were funny and we, and we somehow always were able to find the funny every week. But I felt like we couldn't surprise the audience anymore. That the characters in their eccentricities were in some ways predictable. Give them a situation and you kind of know how they're going to roll on it. And to me... If there is no good indicator of when a show is ready to kind of wind down, that could be one that serves pretty well. When you become somewhat knowable and predictable, 
that that could be a good indication. And you know, you're the the spiritual leader of our show was Jerry, who as a professional comic has to know when to get off the stage. Another three jokes are gonna kill the high that I've just achieved. And or, you know, um, comparatively, I, I, I haven't landed the big one yet to go off on. So he had a sense of that too. And I, I think that's why he was leading the witness in that meeting going, don't you kind of think we're kind of, and I also feel like in retrospect, he had no life for nine years. If he would, I mean, we all had a cushy life. We went and did other things. Our work week was four days a week. You know, two of those days were six hour days. Right. The cushiest job in the world. He was either in the writer's room, the editing room, the casting room, where we had four months down. He had maybe four weeks down before they had to start coming up with stories for the next season. So I think after nine years and everything he had not done in order to do the show and the amount of success in every way that it had brought him, I think he was kind of like, I don't want to die here, you know, <laughs> I'd like to get some of my life back. Yeah. Um, so I, I think his attitude led us to it. Did you? But uh, I, I don't think it was wrong. Did you guys, uh, did you ever see any of them cry when it ended? Did everybody cry or was it kind of like, all right, great, let's go? Yeah, we had a moment. So um, so on a, on a audience show, um, there's a warm-up guy who warms up the audience, gets him in the spirit, you know, okay, you're going to be part of the show, you're going to laugh, and uh, all that crap. And they introduce the cast. You have like a, hey, so it's time to meet the cast. And they'd call us out one at a time, and we'd come out and wave. And... So when we were backstage during those intros, we did a thing, and we did it all nine years, called the Circle of Power. It meant nothing. It was just the four of us would huddle up, we basically go, okay, have a good show. All right, stupid. Yeah. Right. And then we go out and be introduced. Right. The circle of power meant nothing. It was nothing. It was just a moment to say, have a good show. On the final episode, and we were a very unsentimental group. There was a, it's now famous, there was a sign over the writer's room door that said, no hugging, no learning. You know, that's not <laughs> who we are. Um, we got in the circle of power and Jerry said, hey, can I, I want to say something seriously. Okay. And he said, for the rest of our lives, whenever anybody thinks of one of us, they're going to think of all four of us. And there are not three other people on this planet I would rather have that be true of. Wow. And that, and first of all, the sentiment itself was beautiful, but from a very unsentimental guy at a very unsentimental time, it just hit us like a brick, you know, and and then they go, so let's meet the cast. And we all come out and like the tears are flowing. Oh my God. Everybody, everybody. <laughs> yeah, right. You know. Yeah, we were we were pretty smitten by that. Oh, um that's great. But you know, it's uh, I mean, you know, you've been there. I know. You've done it. It's it's that moment. I was go, this is a this is a family that's not gonna be a family. I was on a show. That was called Zoe, Duncan, Jack, and Jane that lasted a year. That was supposed to be the young Seinfeld. They put us banners everywhere in the show. And we shot in the old Seinfeld studio at CBS Radford. And it did not. Yeah, it didn't do well. But, you know, what could be Seinfeld? That's another thing. It's like, once you do Seinfeld, people could always say like, well, he's not done anything as big as Seinfeld. Because there's nothing as big as Seinfeld. Well, I mean, that's the question I get all the time is, you know, 
do you get upset going talking about the show from 30 years ago? Do you that you know? Um, you know, I've had a wonderful career since Seinfeld, but nothing near as big as that show. And they go, well, How does that feel? And I go, I didn't expect one. I was gonna be a Broadway actor if I was yeah. lucky. I was gonna go from Broadway show to Broadway show, make a nice little living and work in the theater. I didn't expect any of this. Wow. You know, nobody, you can't go get this. You can't plan for this. I said, it was a big deal that I was on a TV show. So a big deal I was on a TV show that was successful. It was a big deal that I got paid like I did for a TV show that's successful. Here's the biggest deal. You want to talk about it 30 years after it's, we stopped making it? <laughs> and that's like Star Trek turf. I don't know how to account for that. I don't know why people are still so excited about this show. I truly don't know. I don't, I don't begrudge it, but I don't quite understand it. Why they are still so excited about this show, and it means so much to them, that they want to talk to me about it. And I go, you know what? That means it was more than a passing piece of entertainment for you. It meant something in your life. And if something I did has that much value in your life, I am honored because that doesn't usually happen. We are shadows that flicker and then we disappear. And if it has held substance for you and you want to talk to me and ask a question about it or tell me how much you enjoy it or what it's meant to you, I am blown away and honored to hear that awesome. so you know awesome. you just gotta i hear you i mean on a smaller scale when people you know people still want to talk about small i'm like you know Absolutely. the best thing i did was the biggest thing i did why not why wouldn't i yeah. want to talk about it uh this is yeah. really quick this is called shit talking with jason alexander these are fast <laughs> rapid fire questions dave yeah. p dave p says as a huge star trek fan what was it like to have an actual role as an alien on voyager Hot shit, damn, and working between two kick-ass actresses, Jerry Ryan and Kate. Uh, oh, my God, it was amazing. Awesome. Cindy H., do people recite your lines back to you? And if so, any that you can recall that they want you to say? Here's what I get a lot of. Can't stand you, serenity now, master of my domain, shrinkage. I was in the pool. I get, you know, and the one that's really fun is can't stand you. When you're walking down the street, somebody goes, can't stand you. And I go, he's referencing a show. He actually <laughs> likes me. He's not. <laughs> My favorite is, uh, uh, was it called the dot or the. The red dot. The red dot the where the cleaning lady, where he asks you, he's like, did you, you know, you had a. Yeah, what did he, what did he say? Just set it up. What do you say? It's come to my attention you've been uh, having sexual relations with the cleaning woman on the desk of your office. And my response was, is that wrong? Should I not have done that? <laughs> <laughs> that is an amazing one. That's amazing. Uh, Jerry W., favorite director and why? Uh, Joe Mantello. Uh, I worked with him on the movie version of Love, Valor, Compassion. A thousand reasons why. But the biggest one being I learned things as an actor by being directed by him. If you had to be on the spot right now to sing something in 10 seconds, what would it be? Anything? Anything. Uh, my audition song for most of my Broadway career was Corner of the Sky from Pippin. Rivers belong where they can ramble. Eagles belong where they can fly. I've got to be where my spirit can run free. Got to find my corner of the sky. God, just like that. No warm up. Come on. By the way, when you did Barbara Streisand, was, was it for her birthday at the Hollywood Bowl? Yeah. That you sang from Sweeney Todd in front of the whole Hollywood Bowl for her? But that, I mean, that sounds like I, I wish I was there. No, I didn't swing from Sweeney Todd. We had Angela Lansbury and Len Carrier singing from Sweeney Todd that day. But, didn't, didn't you uh, sing? Yeah, no, I sang for Barbara. Yes. It was very intimidating. What did you sing? 
Hell knows. I, I have no memory. <laughs> I also, I had to go to her house in Malibu to meet, uh, to possibly direct something that she was producing years ago. And she had hurt her back. So she couldn't get out of bed. So I, she was in her bedroom. I was in the guest house and I did the interview over her intercom. That was oh, I thought you were going to be in her bedroom. That would have been the best. No, uh, that would have been lovely. Yes, but no. Jason, this has been an awesome, like a real treat for me. I really adore Michael, you. A what a pleasure. Seriously. What a pleasure. I, you know, we got to have lunch together sometime. Let me get Let's by you lunch. Let me do something. You don't have to buy me shit, but I will be happy to meet you. You know how to find me. You have my email. I have it. Call me, email me. We'll get together. We'll talk. Uh, my partner and I are about to launch a podcast ourselves. I want to talk to you all about this crazy business because you're a, you're a young kid. You know this turf. I don't understand. I'm not that old. I'm not, I'm not that young. <laughs> I'm very old, actually. I'm not that much younger than you. How old are you? I'll be 50 next year. What are you doing? What are you eating? Well, you don't look 50, brother. Evian skin cream. Yeah, um, sure. Little sunlight. God almighty. You look fantastic. No, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. It's good lighting in here. I think it's better lighting. I think that's what's going on. You look great. All right, I love you. Thank you for allowing me to be inside of you today. This has been a real joy. My pleasure. Be well. Talk to you soon. All right. Much love. He just was an open book. That was really cool. I love the, hearing the stories about his magic, how he loves magic. Yeah. I, I love hearing how he likes to sing and he likes to dance. And I like how much adversity he faced and how he he just uh, did what he loved. And he became tremendously successful doing it. And he's just, you can tell he's a grateful guy. He's yeah. just a grateful, good dude. Yeah. And uh, Jason, uh, we're going to have lunch one day. You gave me your email. Big mistake, dude. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> Uh, let's get into, uh, before we get into the top tiers who make this show possible by giving back on Patreon, uh, another reminder, November 20th, I have two shows, my band. If you haven't seen us, just give us a chance. It's virtual. You can watch it from the comfort of your own home. Um, 2 PM and 6 PM. We have two shows on November 20th. Go to stageit.com, uh, type in sunspin or go to sunspin.com. You can also get merch there, but, uh, grab some tickets for you and some friends and enjoy some, uh, some tender sweet music i think you'll like it and um yeah also the inside of you online store tons of merch and uh patreon my lovable patrons who make this show possible i love you guys thank you all of you seriously i don't care if you give a dollar or a five dollars or some of you give way more it makes the podcast really doable and uh, i don't know what i would do without you and i know that you guys love the podcast and i will continue to try to give you great shows. So thank you. If you want to join Patreon, go to patreon.com slash inside of you, patreon.com slash inside of you. Right now, let's give a shout out to all our top tier patrons. Ryan. Great. Nancy. D. Leah. L. Huh? What? What did you say? Leah. You said Leah? Yeah. And uh-huh. What did you say? <laughs> Remember. You were close. I didn't say F. You said F. I did say F. But what's It's S. It's S. Oh. Trisha F, Sarah B, Little, Lisa, U, Kiko, Jill E, Brian, H, Mama Lauren, G, Nico, P, Jerry, W, Robert, uh, B, Jason, W, Kristen, K, Amelia, O, Allison, L, Raj, C, Joshua, D, Emily, S, CJ, P, Samantha, M, Jennifer, N, Stacy, L, Jen, um, um, oh, oh, no. C S 
Yes. Jamal. <laughs> F. Janelle. B. Kimberly. E. Mike. D. Close. A. No. What? D. Mike D. What? E. Mike E. Uh. Eldon. Supremo. 99. More. Ra. Mira. Santiago. M. Sarah. V. No, Sarah F. Chad. Uh, Chad uh, W. Yes. Leanne. P. Janine. R. Maya. P. Maddie. S. Belinda. N. Chris. H. Dave. R. What? Uh, H. Dave H. Yep. Spider-Man. Chase. Sheila. G. Brad. D. Ray. A. H. Yes. <laughs> Tabitha. T. Michelle. B. K. Michelle King. Fuck. Michael. Uh, Rosenbaum. No. Michael S. Talia. M. Betsy. D. Yes. Claire. N. I think it's Claire I. Is it Claire I? Yes. Yeah, that's right. that squiggly again. Laura oh. L. Chad L. Rochelle. Nathan E. Marion. Meg. Ryan. Meg K. Oh. Janelle P. Trav L. Dan N. Big Stevie. W. Kendall T. T is right. Angel. Uh, in, investor. Them, though. Investor. Angel M. Rhiannon. C. Corey. L. Corey K. Super. Sam. Coleman. G. Dev. Nexon. Michelle. A. Yes. A. 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 Liz I. Jeremy C. Andy T. Cody R. Sebastian. The, the crab. K. Oh. Gav. Anator. Yes, correct. Gavinator. And H. David. Uh, Boreanis. C. David C. John. Lennon. B. Brandy D. You have four. Camille S. Ban. Bane, five. Bane. Oh, Bano. Bano. The. C. Correct. Joey M. Willie F. Christina E. Adelaide N. Jeffrey M. Omar I. Lena N. Design OTG. Eugene and Lee. Or Eugene and Leah, mm -hmm. however you look at it, you got sure. both of them. Sure. Chris P, Nikki G, Corey, KTB, Patriola. <laughs> no, Patricia. <laughs> Patricia. I my glasses. I need more. I need better glasses. Patricia, I'm sorry. Marie. Uh, and then I think this is Marla. Marla N. I'm gonna say Marie N. All right. And Bradley S. Great. Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. I love you dearly. Thank you for making me smile. Thank you for caring about this podcast and myself and Ryan and Jason and Bryce who work so freaking hard and I uh, couldn't do it without them and I couldn't do it without you. And thank you for allowing me to be inside of each and every one of you. And uh, please continue to listen to the show, follow the show. And from the Hollywood Hills in California, my name is Michael Rosenbaum. My name is still Ryan Taylor. Get a little wave to the camera up there, Mr. Ryan. Bye. We love you guys. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did. And they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.